Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. A British judge has refused to release Julian Assange on bail one day after ruling that he cannot be extradited to the U.S. This is a huge disappointment. Julian should not be in Belmarsh prison in the first place. I urge the Department of Justice to drop the charges and the President of the United States to pardon Julian. Well, joining me is Niels Meltzer. He is the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and a professor of international law at the University of Glasgow. Professor Meltzer, welcome to Pushback. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You have visited Julian Assange in Belmarsh. What is your reaction to the judge ruling against his extradition on mental health grounds and based on the dangers of the U.S. prison system, but then the following day saying that still Julian Assange cannot be released on bail? Well, well clearly, I mean, I can only welcome the decision not to extradite him. Uh, that, I mean, all along uh, since uh, his arrest, and even before that, in April uh, 2019, I, I, have, I have called on first in Ecuador not to expel him, from the embassy and then on, on Britain not to extradite him to the US precisely based on my concerns about the detention conditions that he would likely be exposed to that are widely recognized to be contrary to the Convention Against Torture. And so, so I can only welcome that. And, and I, 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 I certainly share the assessment of the judge that his exposure to these types of detention uh, conditions uh, would uh, very likely uh, lead him to commit suicide. Um, uh, he had actually confirmed to me when I visited him in prison that he would not be extradited to the U.S. alive. And so that being said, the judgment in itself um, is a very dangerous precedent. Uh, it actually uh, confirms all uh, the points of law, the whole rationale that underlies the U.S. indictment against Julian Assange, which really is not about Julian Assange as much as it is about criminalizing investigative journalism as espionage, which is unprecedented. As we know, no journalist has ever been prosecuted under the Espionage Act in, in the U.S. And now the British judge actually uh, justifies that and goes even further and actually says that what Julian Assange has done would also be criminal under the um, Official Secrets Act of the UK. So it, it said this judgment sets an extremely dangerous precedent, but it goes also even further than that. It, it, uh, espionage is the quintessential um, uh, example of a political offense and uh, the extradition treaty between the US and the UK actually explicitly prohibits the extradition based on, uh, on politi for political offenses. And so the, the judge actually dismissed that, that uh, argument by the defense and uh, also dismissed uh, their concerns about Julian Assange having been uh, surveilled uh, by uh, 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 presumably the CIA through a uh, Spanish security agency working for the CIA, um, so having been surveilled and his confidential uh, um, lawyer uh, and client conversations having been monitored and recorded by uh, the CIA and, and therefore 
uh, the equality of arms that is the, 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 the basis for any uh, legal proceeding has been severely violated. So already on that basis, she should not be uh, extradited to the U.S. She dismissed any concern that these types of state security trials that are being conducted at the espionage court, the, the, uh, the district court in, in Eastern Virginia, uh, that these are not fair trials, although... Uh, as we all know, no security, national security defendant has ever been uh, acquitted at that court. Uh, those trials are being conducted in secret, based on secret evidence that the defense doesn't have access to and the public doesn't have access to. So the worst example, really, of these types of secret trials that you would normally only expect in a dictatorship. So all of these, just to, to sum up, all of the legal concerns, which are extremely grave legal concerns um, uh, in this case, have been dismissed by the judge. And the only reason uh, not to extradite uh, Assange to the U.S. is basically his own medical uh, uh, state and to be fair, uh, a objective point being that the uh, conditions of detention in uh, the supermax conditions, and especially the, uh, the, the special administrative measures, the so-called SAMs in the U.S., that these uh, are extremely harsh and oppressive, and uh, I might add, would violate the Convention Against Torture. Now, what this does is also, um, it, it, for the appeals phase of this case, it reduces all the issues that will be discussed that otherwise would be discussed at the appeals at the high court by experienced judges. It excludes all of these very fundamental legal questions from the discussion. The only point that will be discussed at the high court is now whether or not Julian Assange's mental health allows his extradition to the U.S. And here the U.S. could, they cannot change his medical state of health, but they can change their assurances as to the conditions of detention he would be subjected to. And so if the U.S., for example, came in the, the second instance in the appeals court and just made diplomatic assurances that they would not subject Julian Assange to uh, special administrative measures, this might change the whole equation and all of a sudden extradition could be granted without any of the other legal questions being properly reviewed. So all Let overall, me just extremely concerned about this judgment. So this judgment can be reversed, even though she ruled that Assange cannot be extradited. She could reverse that if the U.S. government makes an argument that the conditions she cited as the reason not to extradite him, if the U.S. government said that those conditions would be addressed? Yes, obviously this would not be then her. I mean, her decision, her judgment has been rendered, but the, uh, the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice has already announced that they will appeal the judgment to the high court, the next instance court. And at that level, the court could take that, those assurances into account and then reverse the judgment. And what are the argument from the judge, uh, Baritzer, that citing the fact that Assange skipped bail in the UK before and then took refuge inside the Ecuadorian embassy to avoid extradition to Sweden, she said that he has a precedent of skipping bail and that he has a huge base of a huge support network in the UK that could allow him to flee the country. What do you make of that argument from her? Well, you know, to, to, to be fair, I mean, it is true that Julian Assange has 
um, uh, avoided his extradition to Sweden at the time. Although I think we need to be also very clear that Julian Assange never wanted to avoid extradition to Sweden. He said, I'm willing to go to Sweden. And he confirmed that repeatedly through his lawyers. If Sweden just guarantees, they will not send me on to the U.S. And so he only feared that Sweden would send him onward to the U.S. without a proper extradition uh, proceeding. And there is a loophole in the Swedish-U.S. extradition uh, a treaty that allows so-called temporary surrender of, uh, uh, of a person without a proper extradition proceeding. And the Swedes have a, a precedent or several precedents where they have just handed over people to the CIA on their in Stockholm airport without any legal proceedings. So uh, to be fair, he saw refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy and he also received asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy explicitly only because of the, 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 because the Swedes uh, refused to guarantee they would not send him onward to the US. Um, but so uh, yes, to return to your question, he, he has obviously uh, avoided his arrest at the time when he was on bail. And so formally, the British authorities have a certain you know, amount of justification in making that argument that th there is a risk that he might abscond again. But then also, let's, let's be very realistic. Um, even if for the purpose of this argument, we accept that the authorities have a right to ensure his presence for the appeals trial and a possible extradition to the US, um, this can be assured in much less intrusive ways than uh, isolating him in a high security prison. Julian Assange should never have been uh, detained in a high security prison in the first place. Uh, why would they do that? Augusto Pinochet, the former dictator of Chile, was in extradition detention in uh, the UK uh, in the late 90s for 18 months, and he was never put in, in a high security prison. He was held in a villa, in, uh, uh, in guarded uh, house arrest, uh, where he was visited by the former uh, Prime Minister uh, Thatcher and so on, and, and received unlimited visits also from, from his uh, you know, family and, 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 and supporters, and, and even flew in his priest for Christmas from, from Chile. So I'm just saying that uh, he is not a convict. Julian Assange is not a convict. He is not serving a sentence. He is being deprived of his liberty purely for preventative reasons. Now, even if we accept that formally uh, this could be justified, I don't believe it is because I don't think there's any reason to extradite him or to, to prosecute him anyway. But even if for the purpose of the argument we accept that, then he should be put in house arrest where he can exercise his profession, he can have a family life, he has his family in London, um, uh, so the, 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 the infrastructure is there, the measures are there to ensure his presence in a much less intrusive manner. The, that this is not being done, that he is being detained in the most isolated uh, regime that is available in the UK, in the most secure high uh, security prison in Belmarsh, in a, in, 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 and now during COVID in effective total solitary confinement and isolation without any external visitors, um, it shows that the purpose is not to ensure his presence for trial. The purpose is to silence him, to isolate him, to cut his ties to the public, the, to prevent him from exercising his profession, and that all of this is unlawful. There is no legal basis to do that. 
And just to stress this point, the argument that he's a risk to skip bail is disingenuous because the only reason that he skipped bail back in 2012 was to uh, avoid this extradition to Sweden where Sweden refused to guarantee that he would not be extradited to the U.S. But now that we have a ruling from the U.K. that he will not be extradited to the U.S., that takes away uh, the initial reason why Assange skipped bail that many years ago. Sure. I mean, you can make that argument, and I think it's a very credible argument. But I think, to be fair, we could also argue, well, you know, uh, from the perspective of the court, Julian Assange is not sure that uh, he will win on appeal. So if the U.S. appeals the judgment, he, he might still attempt to abscond. Uh, I don't think that's a realistic assessment. Uh, and, and again, I have to stress, there is, in terms of law, there is no... Uh, way to uh, argue that this extradition could ever be lawful because espionage is a political offense, because uh, uh, his rights as a defendant have been severely violated throughout the proceeding, because he has been systematically spied upon by the uh, uh, by, by the U.S., who's the other party in the in, in the trial. So so that that trial is inherently arbitrary uh, because uh, of. Uh, the, the uh, disproportionate uh, punishment and inhumane detention conditions he would be facing in the U.S. I mean, there's a long list of reasons which uh, which prevents this extradition from going forward under any circumstances. If we presume it will be judged based on the law, but that's not the case. It's a it's a purely political case, and uh, and, and and so that also is the reason the reasons for his continued detention clearly are political, they're not uh, legal. When you visited Julian Assange in Belmarsh, what was your takeaway about his mental and physical state and the conditions that he was being held in? I, I would say objectively, if you look at Belmarsh prison, it's a high security prison. It's, it's a high security prison. I've, I've visited many, many prisons in my, in my life and uh, the, de the detention conditions objectively uh, uh, are not, uh, uh, you know, inhumane or incorrect for a high security prison. It's just that Julian Assange doesn't belong in a high security prison. Um, and also, uh, when you when we examined him with two medical doctors that are specialized in examining uh, uh, torture victims or potential torture victims, a psychiatrist and a forensic expert, um, they've done this for decades, and both of them are independent. I took them uh, with me uh, to ensure that I had an objective assessment of his state of health, because I knew the case was very uh, politicized, and I wanted to ensure that I had a, a, an objective assessment. And, and they examined him separately from each other, and we all, the three of us separately from each other came to the conclusion that he showed all the symptoms that are typical for psychological torture. Uh, now that is not that was not caused by the conditions of detention in Belmarsh uh, within those four weeks that he had spent there by the time I visited him. Um, these symptoms have been caused by uh, 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 various cumulative factors that he has been exposed to during his uh, asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy the, for the, the, the six years preceding his arrest in 2019, so from 2012 to 2019. And we're talking there about the progressively severe isolation, um, the constant surveillance uh, that took any sense of privacy uh, away from him, which triggered a constant sta state of anxiety. Uh, uh, it was ridiculed as paranoia, 
uh, but as was proven, uh, you know, as soon as he left the embassy, um, uh, he wasn't paranoid at all. He was very realistic about the U.S. being after him. And, you know, on, on the day he was arrested, they immediately uh, um, uh, transmitted an extradition request to the, the U.K. Um, so uh, what, when you look at what psychological torture is, it's, it's, a, it's a form of torture that does not leave physical traces, at least not in the short term, uh, in, 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 in which increasing duration, even psychological torture can lead to cardiac arrest or, or, or nervous breakdowns and severe, even physical damage. But in the first place, it does not leave physical traces. And there is a very um, uh, uh, complex structure of how this is being achieved. It always involves elements of isolation, of intimidation, and here we should remember that Julian Assange has repeatedly received death threats, especially from the U.S., uh, and, and, and that where several uh, public figures had called for his assassination. Uh, we know that uh, uh, there has been evidence being brought in the proceedings in London in September that uh, the uh, security uh, service that uh, the private security service that surveilled him in the embassy. There have been plans of kidnapping or even poisoning him in the in the embassy. Um, uh, so he, he he was fearing for his life, and that's what's being done. Intimidation, threats, especially death threats, are a very effective way of of causing intense distress, which is an element of psychological torture. You accumulate that with um, uh, constant humiliation, social isolation physical isolation, uh, and, uh, and, and this together over time uh, erodes a person's sense of identity, a person's sense of reality. Um, uh, it causes a, a, a stress level that is far beyond anything that, you know, a normal defendant or prisoner uh, in, which is already a very stressful situation in itself, would experience. And it, it, it can actually, actually cause uh, a, a very grave physical consequences. So when we examined him, we could already measure physically the impact of this constant uh, inhumane stress level uh, with cognitive impairments uh, and neurological uh, uh, impairments that, that were already uh, physically measurable. Uh, I still experienced him have, as being clear in his head. I mean, he was able to communicate with us. Uh, he had a, he was very anxious. He was very uh, under a lot of stress. Uh, he, he didn't look obviously healthy. I mean, he was uh, had, had lost lost a lot of weight, um, um, but but he was uh, he he had problems already focusing uh, in, in in his in his discussions, and he, he had this general kind of behavior that I know from experience from visiting political prisoners that are in, in similar types of situations around the world. And what is that? That is this, this, this sense of, of constant anxiety uh, of uh, trying to find, you know, somehow having lost control over their lives and their situation being, uh, he's a very intelligent man. He he's obviously was absolutely aware of you know uh, the, the trap basically he, he had been in in this ecuadorian embassy and uh, and and he was absolutely realistic about what expected him in the us and 
uh, he told me uh, uh, that he will not be extradited alive to the United States. And so I think here we, we really saw someone who is very determined to this option of suicide being the last option of somehow keeping control over his destiny. Um, but uh, as I said, we can already in, in his uh, uh, capacity to, co to, to coordinate and to communicate, we could already sense that uh, he was on a downward spiral. And the doctors that accompanied me, they said that uh, his state of health was on the brink of, of uh, uh, kind of a downward spiral where uh, his life could also be then under threat. And nine days after our visit, actually, uh, we proved to be right. He had to be moved to the health department of uh, the prison because uh, because uh, his his uh, state of health uh, became uncontrollable. They had to stabilize him through medication, and from then on, uh, he was kept in medical isolation, basically, which even uh, uh, deteriorated his state of health uh, even further. Very shortly afterwards, he was no longer able to participate in court hearings, and so for many months. We feared that, uh, you know, we might wake up to a day where, uh, you know, the news would just say that Julian Assange was uh, found dead in his cell. So I, I, I personally think it's, you know, based on 20 years of experiences of, of visiting prisoners and, and, and many of whom are being exposed to, to extremely severe conditions and including ill treatment, it is a, a miracle that this man is still alive. You mentioned the threats from the U.S. to Assange. It's amazing how bipartisan that is. The incoming president-elect, Joe Biden, has called Assange a high-tech terrorist. The outgoing Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, gave a very chilling speech in 2017. We have to recognize that we can no longer allow Assange and his colleagues the latitude to use free speech values against us. To give them the space to crush us with misappropriated secrets is a perversion of what our great constitution stands for. Having observed this case very closely, having seen how the U.S. has acted and how other countries, especially Sweden and the U.K., have acted, what is your sense of what the U.S. strategy is with Assange? Well, it is clear it's not prosecution. It's persecution. And the difference between prosecution and persecution is whether you're using the law to enforce the law or you're using the law for ulterior motives, for political purposes. And that's clearly the case here. Um, if the US were in good faith about applying the law, the first thing they would do, they would prosecute their own war criminals and their own torturers. If Pompeo says, he says, you know, something about uh, Julian Assange is crushing us or he's threatening us, well, what, who is us? Is he speaking about the war criminals? Because that's the only people that are being exposed. Is, it a, is he speaking about, is he identifying with, those, with the corruption that has been exposed? Is he identifying with the torturers? Well, you know, that's essentially what he is saying because the American people have never been threatened by Assange. Uh, the American people is threatened by people who are, uh, you know, are using violence against them, just as in the case of George Floyd where you can see the same type of um, inhumane disrespect uh, that is reflected in the infamous collateral murder video that was uh, published by WikiLeaks, um, where, where we can see the helicopter crew uh, massacring uh, uh, unarmed uh, and, and wounded people, especially in, in 
in the rock. Um, and, and so that is what's being exposed. And the problem really is that the government has succeeded in making the people believe that uh, there's a security threat to them when their own criminals in uniform are being exposed. Because obviously a, an average soldier, US soldier, uh, has not committed any war crimes uh, and, and they're not being threatened and exposed by WikiLeaks. And these are the people that, that uh, we should identify with and we should not identify with those few that commit uh, war crimes. And even if there are whole agencies like the CIA have, that have an actual policy of torture, uh, we have to realize that that it's, it, there cannot be good faith if states are not prosecuting very, very serious crimes such as torture and murder, but then they're prosecuting the people that are exposing such crimes, uh, be it the whistleblowers or uh, the journalists. The propaganda against Assange that the U.S. government has certainly encouraged has been very effective. Many people are under the impression that Assange was trying to avoid rape charges in Sweden, which was not the case. You have done exhaustive work on this, looking into the actual facts of the Swedish case. If you can give us a summary of how you came to be involved and what you uncovered when you actually looked at the details of what happened in Sweden. Yeah, well, I, essentially, I got involved in this case when his legal team uh, approached my office and asked for my protection when he was still in the, the Ecuadorian embassy in, actually two years ago in December 2018. I initially refused to get into the case because I have been affected by this public narrative as well of, of Julian Assange, the, you know, the rapist, the narcissist, the spy, the hacker. And I had this visceral reaction of, no, this man is just going to uh, manipulate me. And so his legal team came back to me three months later, just before he was expelled from the embassy in, in late March 2019. And uh, this time they also sent me some pieces of evidence, uh, you know, some medical evidence and, and, and uh, also some, some other, uh, you know, pieces that I, I was looking at. And when I started looking at the evidence very quickly, I saw that there's something is not adding up, that this is not really supporting this, uh, this public narrative. In, in fact, the evidence is contradicting this public narrative that everyone had been affected by, and including myself. And so I felt I owed it to my professional integrity to actually look into this case and to go and visit him. And that's also why I took these uh, you know, uh, medical experts with me to ensure that I had an objective basis uh, for, my, for my assessment. And so the deeper I got into this case, the more dirt basically came to the surface. And uh, very quickly, I realized that the turning point in the story of Julian Assange was the Swedish accusations of rape. And that's obviously a very, very delicate issue. Uh, I mean, I'm dealing with sexual violence uh, every, on a daily basis in torture. Uh, uh, sexual violence is very common. It's a very serious uh, crime. And also we have, we live today in the time of Me Too, uh, which is a very legitimate movement. Uh, so the issues uh, are very legitimate about sexual violence and, and that, but it also leads to a certain taboo. As soon as a, a man is accused of, of sexual abuse, um, he basically becomes untouchable. You can no longer even deal with it. And it becomes a taboo you cannot look at. And so I have to, 
I had to cross that line and say, well, let's actually look at the evidence. And now, uh, luckily, I do speak Swedish. And my, 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 my part of my family is Swedish. And so I'm, I was able to read uh, thousands of documents that don't exist in English language. And uh, what I could see is really that um, the Swedish authorities have turned a completely different story that was brought to them by, by two women into uh, rape allegations. Uh, these two women never intended to uh, bring rape allegations against, um, uh, against Julian Assange. They went to the police station both of them had separately from each other had sexual uh, contact with uh, Julian Assange, and they went to a police station because they ended up having uh, unprotected uh, sex with him, and they feared to, that they might have contracted some, uh, especially HIV. So they wanted him to take an HIV test, and they wanted to know from the police whether they could force him to take an HIV test. That was that was the only thing they wanted, and the police, within 30 minutes of hearing these women decided that this was they were going to take this up as a rape as rape uh, a suspicion of rape and uh, the women did not agree with that but the police informed them and, i mean in the protocol it says that the police officer says i informed them that even uh, without their will uh, they were you know it was their duty to uh, prosecute this as as rape and, uh, uh, and, and that they basically didn't have anything, any control over that narrative anymore. And what we can see is in you know, text messages of these women and emails and so on, that they were extremely stressed about this and that they, one of them even refused to sign the, uh, the, the, the interview form um, that, that was being filled by the police and, uh, and, and because she wanted to avoid this accusation being made. But the, the police and or the prosecutor, we don't know exactly who it was, but the same evening um, leaked all of this information to the, to the tabloid press, uh, and that's unlawful under Swedish law. Um, um, you can't publish uh, the, the names of a suspect or of victims of, of, of a crime uh, before formal charges are being brought. And so the, the prosecutor leaked that information to the press the same evening, and obviously Julian Assange, that was in 2010, just after the, 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 his big um, uh, publication of the, uh, the, the Afghanistan war, was it the uh, Afghanistan war logs um, in July 2010. So he was something like a, a superstar at the time um, that attracted a lot of people, including a lot of women, and, uh, and, and so clearly, uh, he was being perceived as a threat by the U.S. and its allies, which includes Britain and Sweden. And uh, so this, these headlines went around the world within within hours and brought these women in and into a situation where they really couldn't contradict uh, that narrative anymore uh, because they had actually gone to the police with a different request, but the police had turned it into a rape uh, narrative that was then pursued very aggressively against Julian Assange, uh, clearly in order to, to destroy his reputation, to, uh, to, to, to deprive him of his support base. And this was done very uh, uh, deliberately, very studiously, how the, the authorities um, communicated this very publicly and at the same time avoided um, bringing formal charges against him for uh, nine years. Now here we have to address something that is very important. 
uh, it is the, the authorities have always claimed that uh, Julian Assange uh, wanted to evade justice, that he uh, wanted to avoid the authorities. He didn't want to answer to these, these, these allegations. That is not true. He was in Sweden at the time, and he actually contacted the police. He wanted to be, uh, uh, to be interrogated, to be heard. And, and uh, so he actually went uh, on the, the 20th of August, the, the women went to the police, and it took the authorities 10 days until the 30th of August to actually hear him out. Uh, but in the meantime, this, this narrative had already spread around the world, you know, uh, six times. And uh, when he was interviewed, uh, finally, the, the first uh, allegation of rape had already been closed by a superior um, prosecutor who said that this was, you know, uh, there was no factual basis to suspect that, suspect that any crime had committed, been committed at all. So he was only interviewed based on a, a sexual harassment charge um, or allegation um, against the second woman. And uh, in the beginning of that interview, he asked the police officer, he said, well, I, you know, already we've had these very damaging headlines. Uh, do I have to expect that all what I'm saying now, again, in this confidential interview will again be leaked to the press? The police officer assured him that this was not the case, but two days later, it was again, uh, the headline of the same tabloid uh, paper uh, what said, it read, uh, this is the interview as of Julian Assange word by word. So you can see that this was systematically leaked by the authorities to the press in order to maintain this, uh, this aggressive uh, uh, rape narrative. Um, and and from the beginning, since then in 2010, this type of very unfair uh, violation of his privacy rights, his due process rights has been systematic until September last year, even the, the extradition hearing in London. Uh, I mean, I could go in, in lots of details about the Swedish case, uh, uh, if, if you like, but it's, it's a very time-consuming um, exercise. The short, the short conclusion really is that, and I think the most important statement to make here is that Julian Assange, uh, was, he, he was in Sweden and he was supposed to leave Sweden on the 25th of August, which is five days after these women went to the police. As soon as he... Uh, uh, was informed about these headlines from or, or about these allegations from the headlines, he actually postponed his departure. He didn't try to evade or to, to flee Sweden. He actually prolonged his stay in Sweden for more than a month. He left on the 27th of September. And during this time, his lawyer repeatedly um, uh, asked the prosecutor to interview him. And then one proceeding was closed. And it was reopened a few days later by a different prosecutor. Again, his lawyer asked, well, can my client please make a statement? And she actually refused to interview him for several weeks. And only one week before his departure, she tried to, to schedule an interview uh, uh, with him for the 28th of September. So she did not try to interview him on the rape charge from the 20th of August until the 28th of September, which is more than like six weeks or so. Um, and on the 27th of, of uh, uh, September, Julian Assange left Sweden. Now, this looks like he wanted to evade the uh, appointment of the 28th. 
that is not the case. He had planned to leave the 27th uh, already in mid-September, and he had contacted the prosecutor uh, to get authorization to leave the country, uh, and the prosecutor authorized him to leave the country. And then he was uh, effectively not reachable for his uh, lawyer for several days because Julian Assange's credit cards had been canceled uh, when he arrived in Sweden by, uh, by, the, by, the, by the banks. And so he was not able to actually uh, recharge his phone and get phone credit credits and actually could not be reached. That is true. But he did not know that he was scheduled to be interviewed uh, on the 28th of September. He, in good faith, knew that he was authorized to leave the country. He left the country. And quite interestingly, his interview was scheduled for the 28th, and the prosecutor issued an arrest warrant against him the day before he was scheduled to be heard. Now, why, why would you do that? She would schedule the interview, and if he doesn't turn up, then you schedule a uh, uh, then you, you issue an arrest warrant. But he was scheduled to appear for the interview on the 28th, and on the 27th, she issued an arrest warrant. And so, and, and she had also authorized, and she had also authorized his departure from the country. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, and and she actually even admitted to that. So this this evidence is there in writing. I think it was the twenty, uh, the fifteenth of September or something. Uh, so mid September, if I'm not mistaken, it was the fifteenth of September. His lawyer uh, contacted the prosecutor and asked whether Julian Assange could leave the country. He, he said, look, he's not he doesn't live in Sweden. Uh, he has obligations out of the country. Uh, this proceeding is going on. Uh, could you please tell us when he can be heard and whether, he, whether there's any obstacle for him uh, uh, you know, to, to leave the country? And she confirmed that there was no obstacle for him to leave the country and that at the moment, uh, there, was, it, it, there was no question of, of interviewing him because she, there were several other steps and other people and other witnesses she wanted to hear before that. Um, and, and so only uh, a week or two later, what was that, about the 21st or 22nd of September, she asked uh, the lawyer whether they could schedule a interview for the 28th of September. And she didn't do that through formal channels. She sent him an SMS, a text message, which is a very unusual way of convoking a high-profile suspect uh, for an interview. You don't do that with a text message, obviously. So what you can see is really the authorities in Sweden were very low-key and did not want to hear his opinion as long as he was in Sweden. But then at the moment, he went to the airport, he bought his plane ticket uh, around noon on the 27th of September. Two hours later, his arrest warrant was issued and, but he was still at the airport, so he could have been arrested. Uh, but they didn't arrest him. They allowed him to leave. And there's an, an additional point here. His luggage, his checked luggage, disappeared on this flight. It was a, direct, a short direct flight from Stockholm to Berlin. His luggage, and only his luggage, uh, none of the other passengers lost their luggage, but he lost his luggage, including some laptops and hard, uh, hard drives and everything. Um, he inquired afterwards, and, and all these 
there's a written trail of evidence on this. Uh, so he inquired uh, uh, at the Stockholm airport, uh, you know, from Berlin, um, what happened to his luggage. And the only thing he received as, a, as an answer was, yes, we can see that you checked the luggage. Um, uh, and we can see that it never left Stockholm, but we don't know where it is. And so, you know, clearly here we have the, the security police, uh, the Secret Service of Sweden involved. Uh, we, don't, we don't have, clearly they, they wouldn't admit that, but I mean, that's the only option when, when, when you have uh, checked luggage uh, in, in a place like Stockholm. I and mean, we're not in a developing country where you have any form of chaos at the airport. And one single piece of luggage gets lost and uh, they can confirm it never left Stockholm, but we don't know where it is. Um, that really is not credible. And so, and at, at the same time, he's scheduled to, again, to appear for an interview the next day, but an arrest warrant is issued for him the day before, um, that, that, all, that all of this doesn't add up. And so as soon as he'd left the country, the prosecutor basically informs the public, you know, that uh, Julian Assange has evaded justice. And uh, so then they become aggressive about pursuing him and wanting to question him. They didn't want to question him for several weeks while he was in Sweden. As soon as he left Sweden, uh, they did everything for him to be extradited back to Sweden so they could, uh, they, they could interview him. So you can see that it, it just, the, the, here too, there is not a good faith conduct on the part of the authorities. Uh, and you can see that that whole narrative of the rape suspicion was really used um, to destroy his credibility much more and to, to paint a picture of someone who's trying to evade justice. Uh, um, because that obviously is, is something that uh, creates public interest. You put the spotlight on the person. You speak of sexual offenses, of you know ev evasion, and so on, and and so the whole uh, uh, the headlines will deal now with the person of Julian Assange, but no one actually deals with the other side of the equation, the elephant in the room. Uh, the actual problem in this case is not Julian Assange. I mean, it is about war crimes. It's about uh, you know systematic torture. It's about corruption. It's about environmental damage that was caused by, uh, you know, uh, uh, extractive companies. All these things that have been exposed by WikiLeaks um, that were threatening to the powerful. And what's, so Julian Sands, what he did, he put a spotlight on that misconduct. And what the powerful succeeded in doing with this rape narrative, especially, is to turn around the spotlight and put it on Assange. And and so that's just the reality of how the public uh, reacts. You know, if you're in a dark room in a cinema, everybody, everybody just stares at the screen because that's where the, the headlights basically is pointed, right? Uh, there could be an elephant in the room, you wouldn't notice it. And so that's really what the public does when the authorities and the mainstream media focuses on Assange and discusses his you know, sexual life or his, uh, his cat or his skateboard or whatever in the embassy. And that's what's being discussed. And we believe that this is about freedom of opinion, that we can discuss Julian Assange's skateboard. But the headlines do not deal with the actual problem, the actual elephant in the room, which is the war crimes and the, the, you know, the, the misconduct of the government. And that is precisely 
what the government's tried to achieve with this. So as we wrap, what is your sense of what happens next? The prosecutor who oversaw this case in the U.S. has said he's not sure if the Biden administration will appeal the ruling, will continue the appeal. But what do you expect in the short term? What 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 are you looking uh, for in the coming weeks when it comes to this case? It's difficult to predict. There's a certain uh, level of complexity now because uh, I, I, we have obviously an incoming administration, Biden. We have an outgoing administration, Trump. It's the Trump administration that um, that initiated this prosecution and extradition uh, request. Uh, uh, the incoming President Biden was the vice president of the Obama administration, uh, which uh, was very happy in having having uh, Julian Assange hold up in the embassy, uh, but didn't want to uh, prosecute and extradite him because of so-called New York Times problems, because of the press freedom amendment um, that would. Uh, uh, you know, pr actually prohibits a prosecution of a publisher, um, and so so now we have someone of that of the old school basically coming back into office, and I could imagine that a, a President Biden would not be interested in in having an espionage trial uh, for a, a a publisher. So there are several options. Either he can. Um, uh, he can expand uh, the uh, or, or change the indictment to a compute, computer fraud indictment or something like this, um, or they can decide not to appeal and just to say um, we now have a judgment in the UK that confirms the US narrative of journalism potentially being espionage. So it may be better to have that threat out there for all other journalists in the world without having it tested in court. And I'm not speaking of the espionage court, which would just wave it through, but perhaps the Supreme Court in the US would be less likely to accept uh, this type of rationale and might even uh, dismiss it in the end. So maybe it's better for the US administration to have this kind of vague threat out there um, and, and having demonstrated uh, on Julian Assange's example that uh, the U.S. will crush you, will destroy you, will pursue you until the end of the world. And the only reason for him not to be extradited uh, is only because he's already uh, uh, physically and mentally destroyed. So this threat scenario, um, you know, I, I think is, is, could be attractive to uh, Biden. Unfortunately, the Democrats have not been uh, you know, much better than the Trump administration on the, on the, on the, 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 the persecution of, um, of whistleblowers. And, uh, and, and I, I guess that they would be interested in silencing Assange just as much as the Trump administration would be. I'm not very optimistic there. But there are other ways to do that than through an espionage charge. I would expect Biden to find a different solution. Uh, as I said, either expanding to computer fraud or uh, or uh, basically uh, stopping the proceeding now and also maintaining towards Julian Assange this kind of threat scenario saying, look, the UK has confirmed that we can prosecute you for espionage. And the only reason we're not doing it is because you're unwell mentally. So if ever uh, you get well again, we, we might start it all over again. So this could silence him for the rest of his life. So I'm unfortunately, uh, not very optimistic. 
Well, we'll have to leave it there. Niels Meltzer, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. I have a lot of gratitude, as do many, for all the work you've done in bringing attention to this case. Your work on this has been courageous and invaluable. So thank you. Thank you very much, Andy. 